Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. You are listening to 3 R. I'm Dr. Shane. Welcome to 2022. I uh, wasn't in the studio last week. I did it remotely, but I'm in the studio today, and Dr. Laura is with me. Good morning, madam. Good morning, Dr. Shane. I'm excited to be back in 2022. Yeah, you've had a you've had a good run so far too, haven't you? In 20. 20- well, I've had I've had I've had COVID so far in you've 2022. Done I've done it. Yeah, you've so been there. you're okay. Yeah, yeah, all good. Yeah, got through. Yeah. Did you have some special Doherty Institute sort of uh, cocktail that you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Actually, that, that would have been good. It'd be good if there'd be some benefits to work in there. <laughs> well, yeah, I think there's a lot of benefits, but, you know, let's be like getting you out of trouble there. And we've got Dr. Ailey on the line. Good morning, Ailey. Good morning, Dr. Shane. How are we going? Uh, we're going well. Uh, it's all good. How's things at your place? You? Yeah, good. Look, we've managed to uh, avoid it so far, but uh, I'm, I'm not anticipating that we will for much longer given school and everything's back. So uh, yeah. we'll see how we go. But no, look, it's been a good start to 2022 for us yeah. so far. you got, you got to stop hugging people randomly on the street. Yeah, I know. I get a bit excited. Doesn't you know. work well. Well, <laughs> folks, we have got a big show ahead today. We've got Dr. Eric Levy coming back on the show. I'm not sure if you remember Eric. He's a ENT surgeon. But after he did the last show of us, he started putting up a few videos of shoving, shoving pipes and things down his nose to look at his vocal cords and then he put out the amazing go low go slow video on how to do rat tests uh, well actually it was on pcr test first but um it's uh it's gone a bit viral so we're gonna have a chat to him about that with the opening of schools tomorrow and parents expecting to have to do those twice a week recommended recommended we'll see uh and after that we're going to be speaking to our second guest will be amy haley and amy's working on some really interesting monitoring systems for people in cars to make sure that they're not driving when they're incapacitated shall we say so that will be uh that will be a bit of fun too but we're going to start off with some news for you dr ailey do you want to i might let you just uh, work at your end there on turning your volume up just a smidge for us and we'll let uh, dr laura go first laura's been stuck in traffic so she's a bit freaked out Oh, right. I was just literally swallowing a mouthful of coffee. Yeah. Um, Found a really interesting study this week. It was published published in Science, which means it's a big deal. And it was about how gut microbiomes um, facilitate hibernation in squirrels. Now, of course, the microbiome does everything. It's associated with better immunity from disease, neurological disorders. And so perhaps no surprise that one more thing that the microbiome Mm. is involved in. But this study was really neat because they really nailed exactly what's going on. So when you think about hibernation, these squirrels, like they suppress their met- met- metabolism, they reduce their energy, but they're inactive for months and they don't eat, they don't sleep. And we know from when we're inactive, you know, prolonged bed rest, for example, in hospital, there's muscle wastage. Mm. What's really neat about animal hibernation is that they don't lose any muscle mass. And in some animals, they actually come better off with a gain in muscle mass after hibernation. Wow. So what on earth, right? What's going on? How do I do that? Yeah, I know. How do, well, I, actually, wake up? How do this, I wake up better than I went to bed? This study actually may <laughs> give some new knowledge to how you could wake up more awesome. Don't even go to the gym. Just wake up with more muscle. Okay, so it's all to do with the microbiome and they really nail it. So um, what they found is that the gut microbiome, it induces nitrogen recycling. So we know when proteins are broken down, they're broken down into urea. And we pass this out in our urine, we can't break it down. But what the microbiome 
what the guts mi- gut microbes did is that they recycled the urea that was broken down from protein breakdown during muscle wastage. They converted it into nitrogen, and then that's reincorporated into new protein. So it keeps it all going. It keeps mm. it cycling. Now, of course, that's all well and good saying there's a new study that says that. But when you think about how they actually showed it, the study itself was really awesome when you think about the experimental detail. So it was carried out at the University of Wisconsin. They caught female wild squirrels, fun in itself. As you do. Yep. Bred them, and then they separated the squirrels. Sorry, did they breed them with other female wild squirrels or squirrels they had already in captivity that were male? Oh, I don't know. I just read that it was it was wild-caught female squirrels. Yeah, excellent <laughs> point. So anyway, then they, they had this big squirrel colony. I'm glad colony. you didn't say bred with them. Yeah. Okay, so they okay. have a... They have a they, they so they're breeding this, these squirrels. They're breeding the squirrels, yep. right? And they separate them into three groups. Yep. They call them summer squirrels and then two groups of winter squirrels. Hello. Now, the winter mm. squirrels are forced into constant darkness and the cold. Oh. Yeah, sucks mm. for them. So um, anyway, and they're, they're induced in that state for several months, so it stimulates hibernation. Now, within those winter squirrels, they break them into two groups. One, intact microbiome one group on antibiotics so Ah. it depletes the microbiome so then you've got three groups summer winter intact microbiome and winter no microbiome so you can see the difference now the first thing they found is that the microbiome was different between the summer and winter squirrels in the ones with the intact microbiome that's been already shown in bears so we we know that that you get different microbiome diversity but what they then and, and actually what they actually found is that those squirrels in hibernation they have a higher proportion of microbiomes that can break down more urea so a higher amount of urea's genes so that's all we going in the right direction with the hypothesis Mm. of the nitrogen recycling anyway next step of the experiment's really cool they injected each squirrel with isotype labeled urea so then they could track how it was being broken down within the bodies of each squirrel Mm. and then after euthanasia of the squirrels they looked for the incorporation of urea derived nitrogen in the proteins and in the muscles and in various tissues of the squirrels and what they found is that you only get incorporation into proteins of the squirrel's body when you have the microbiome so that's showing in the sort of non-antibiotic group so it shows that the microbes are doing it and there's a much higher incorporation in the squirrels in hibernation interesting so they absolutely nailed it that's why it's in science they show a functional role for the microbiome in converting urea into proteins in in in, during hibernation and what's really awesome about this study is that the microbiome we know we can tamper with it right so when you think about like strategies to you know prevent malnutrition or to prevent muscle wasting in in humans we could actually use this as a tool to start sort of you know maybe inducing those sorts of microbes that can do this within mammals within humans it's amazing stuff do you feel sad for these squirrels that were part of this study they didn't turn out too well it, di- it didn't it rough for them it rough for the squirrels but yeah. the squirrels really informed like what we could then move forward yeah. so mm. i think a good outcome good stuff. outcome for the squirrels yeah yeah well in, in the long game in the, long game, the long game, squirrel long game. world yeah. yeah well it's interesting stuff though isn't it geez the, the microbiome and and i guess one of the one of the lessons in there is that whole thing of antibiotics are going to mess with you. Totally. If, so if you can avoid taking them, you know, like, I mean, this is one of the things we went through a period where it seemed like they were giving out like candy. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and we're restricting that now, but mainly due to resistance, um, not because it's, you know, bad for you to, you know, obviously, you know, when you're really sick and you need antibiotics, that's your option. Yeah. But boy, if you're taking them when you don't need to. Yeah. And long-term more use. Damage, what, yeah. yeah. Really, really highlights it, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah. It's interesting. Really interesting study. Dr. Ailey, how are we going down there with the volume? Yeah. I think it's that better, Dr. Oh, yeah. Fink? That'd be better. Thank yeah, you very much. Yeah. It was on, my, my microphone was on the wrong one. Doesn't matter. We fixed it. It's all good. What's happening in and the news? I have 
what I think is a pretty crazy science fiction style uh, study that's come out this week. Now, for me, this blew my mind when I read this. This is about regrowing amputated limbs, Oh yeah. right? So currently we can't do this. Now, this story isn't actually about us, but it certainly has implications. You know, it's one of those studies that's like this is the very first step in really um, thinking about regrowing limbs from scratch when we have an amputee or something like that. So what this is, is a study that was uh, done by a group out of Tufts University in Massachusetts, uh, and it was published in Science Advances this week, where they grabbed uh, a little old frog. We all love frogs. This one was an African claw-footed frog. Mm. Don't know what that is, but it's a reasonable-sized frog, I think. <laughs> and they, they got that frog, and, and very humanely, they amputated one of its hind legs. Yep, cut it right off. Cut it off. And then what they did was they got this fantastic little uh, cocktail of drugs. They put it in a little silicon cap and they put it over the area that had been amputated for literally 24 hours. That's it, 24 hours. Okay. Yep. And then over the course of the next 18 months, the frog regrew its leg. No way. Yeah. Yeah, way. <laughs> like <laughs> this Why? blew my Why? mind. It was it was exposed for twenty four hours to these special drugs, and it regrew an entire leg. Now the leg wasn't perfect; it wasn't exactly as it had been. Some of the the bones in the toes didn't quite um, reform properly. But the drugs that they gave it was this really really fantastic cocktail. So they had to give it. Um, I think it was collagen to make sure that it didn't clot because one of the biggest problems with regrowing, you know, if you wanted to regrow a limb is that um, most animals, including humans, have this fantastic ability to uh, clot blood and create scar tissue immediately um, to protect, you know, the, the what's left, but it means that nothing can regrow, right? So they had to, they had to put... Um, a drug in this in this cocktail to stop that from happening in the first place. Had to put anti-inflammatories. They put some other things in there to um, to encourage uh, growth of of nerves and of muscle and and bone like structures even regrew. Um, but it was pretty incredible that over eighteen months it grew a functioning limb that, as I said, wasn't the same as before. But the frog could swim with this limb. It could get around with this limb. And so this is this is really a huge, I, in my mind, this, the reason this blew my mind is because, you know, mammals, including humans, and I know it was a reptile, but reptiles too, um, can't regrow limbs. They mm. just can't. Um, once they're cut off, um, that's what happens. There, there are some regenerative processes that happen. Apparently, if, if kids get their fingertips cut off, they can, uh, they can regrow those, but only children. Um, and like salamanders can regrow limbs. Some worms, when you segment them, will grow. And, I mean, there's evidence, you know, in the human body of, like, the liver. You can chop the part of the liver off and it'll regrow, but not limbs. So this was such a huge study for that uh, reason. And one of the other things that the researchers said blew them away was that they only needed to expose these drugs to the frog for 24 hours. And the whole regrowth process took 18 months. Uh, but it regrew in a way that uh, the, the limb responded to stimuli. And as I said, the frog could, could kick and get around and swim with it. So um, I thought this was a pretty incredible study and a, a, a pretty 
massive leap forward in our understanding of of kind of regenerative medicine. Um, mm. And I mean, look, it's a very very long way from being able to do it on mammals and on and humans and stuff. But it's one of those demonstrations that kind of shows you, you know, with the right um, signals, the body could do it. And actually, one of the things I didn't say was that this cocktail of drugs and the way they did it in this little silicon cup, one of the reasons they did it in this silicon cup was that it was a liquid and they kind of tried to recreate um, an amniotic environment. So, you know, thinking about when when um, babies grow, they're in an amniotic sac and, and that's a really, um, you know, it's, a, it's the environment that they need to grow, right? So they tried to recreate that with the frog. And um, it seemed to work. So, yeah, wow. that blew me away. But they regrew an entire stuff. leg. Yeah. Yeah, one, yeah. And one, I saw one a small step of it for that... a frog. Yeah. One giant yeah. leap for uh, reconstructive processes. Regen- regenerative yeah, regeneration. processes. Yeah, it's yeah, amazing. Right. I mean, that's the, the, the holy grail in, in a way, isn't it, for many parts it of the is, body? It is, it is. If we could it do is. that, that would be phenomenal. Mm. I'm well, just going to look up the... Ingredients in that cocktail of drugs, just for my handbook yeah, of how to yeah, regrow that, limbs. Yeah. <laughs> just see if I can cook something up in the lab. <laughs> At this point, I think you know I'm getting older. I'd be happy with just maintaining the limbs I've got. <laughs> you know, like I mean, I think in a scenario where, yeah, I mean, depending on on what you need to do there, you may even be able to sort of prevent the removal of limbs after trauma and so forth if there's a capacity to do repair. There's all sorts mm. of exciting things there. Re- really interesting mm. stuff, Ailey. Mm. Well, mm. in the uh, in the last minute of our news, I just wanted to remind people if they weren't aware, but um, if they follow me on Twitter, they'll know this because I've just been going off about it for the last six months. But the James Webb Telescope, which launched uh, Christmas Day, I think it was for us actually, uh, had this little journey. It's almost month-long journey to its... L2, so this is the L2 Lagrange point, which is far beyond the moon, and it had to do a lot of things. This thing was like a giant, you know, crunched up piece of paper that had to unfold in many, many ways. There were so many different things that had to unfold and move into position correctly, and it made it there a few days back, and it's all running, and Interestingly enough, uh, if you've been looking at this, this has a big shade sail so that the telescope part that collects all the information is in shade, whereas the electronics are not, uh, or some of the other parts of the telescope are not. And so on one side of the scope at the moment, it's seen there, you can look this up. If you go to um, James Webb Space Telescope, so J- JWST, um, just Google that, you'll find a website and you can, you can look um, at a link there called Where is Webb? And it will tell you that right now, at this very moment, uh, the temperature on the warm side is 52 degrees Celsius. And on the other side of the telescope, literally the other side of the, the device, it's minus 211 degrees Celsius. So there's like a, a 260 degree difference between the two sides of this this particular spacecraft, which is phenomenal. Now, it'll be a little while before the um, the thing's all up and running and, and sending back actual images, but very exciting. There's so many things that could have gone wrong between, you know, when it was launched and now, and none of them did. So, you know, it looks like smooth sailing at this point, which is fantastic. Anyway, we have to take a break, folks, while we um, get Dr. Eric Levy on the line. Um, We'll be back in just a few minutes. Here's some music for you while we do that. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favorite podcast platform. Yeah, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. 
It's a community radio station, so we can say whatever we want, Dr. Laura. I'm not sure <laughs> if you're aware of that, uh, but behave yourself anyway. But on the line with us now is Dr. Eric Levy. He's a pediatric and adult ear, nose, and throat specialist, otolaryngologist, head, of neck, uh, head and neck surgeon. He was on the show last year, and he's back. Hey, Eric, how are you going? Hi, Dr. Shane. Good to see you again. Good to hear from you again, I should say. It's great to see you. We interact so much on Twitter. It's almost like, you know, this is standard stuff for us. But um, look, first of all, I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, some of the videos you've made because I think this is a great example of where science communication often fails, uh, not your vision um, (laughs) in general. (laughs) Um, But you put it, you know, after our last interview, I remember you putting up a video of you threading a... uh, you know, garden hose down your up your nose and down your throat, showing us <laughs> the vocal right. cords and how they all work. Yeah. It was fascinating. And then your, yeah. your next your next trick was, um, you know, unlike James Blunt, you had more than one hit. And <laughs> your, your next hit was to actually look at um, how to go and do a PCR test um, properly. I mean, just talk us through that because I think uh, most people, myself included, the first time you go to a uh, sort of get one of those PCR tests and someone comes up with one of these big long wands and, you know, wants to yes. shove it up your nose, you think, hey, you know, what's going on? So talk us through that process. What's required and where do you go? You know, how far do you go? Yeah, so that's the fascinating thing, isn't it? So a lot of information that is actually medical in nature uh, and the general public probably have some sort of um, uh, preconceived ideas about how the shape of the nose work and what happens in the nose. Uh, surprisingly, you know, um, uh, I just all I wanted to do is just provide some very basic, simple information to help make sense of how to do the test well. Really, a lot of people think, oh, we've been doing it wrong. Well, actually, not. you haven't been doing it wrong. I just want to show you a slightly better way mm. that is less painful in the hope that you will capture more viral antigens. So as you probably know, you know, most people have got the idea that the nose goes up towards the brain. Well, there's more space down and back. Um, and that was one of the first thing, you know, when we're doing a PCR test or a red test, we don't really want to just capture the hairy skin of the tip of the nose. We want to capture the pink mucosa which is sitting a little bit further behind and the roof of the nose is narrow and we all many of us about 62 percent have crooked septum Hmm. so aiming the swap stick up high would mean that you're going to hit the roof very quickly and it's going to cause quite a lot of pain and that's the reason why i've been teaching people just to angle the swap down and back that reduces pain but the other thing as well that a lot of people don't know is that movement and pressure is registered as pain by the nose so actually doing it fast would make it feel like you've just been you know jabbed in the eyeball with uh, with an ice cream pick no uh, um, you you just need to go low and slow and the slower you go the more you're going to capture the viral goo you know uh, and so less pain more viral capture means that hopefully uh, you'll capture a much better sample for your test. Yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? I mean, we, we always, um, I think it's very important that we're very respectful and polite of all the people doing the testing. I remember the last time I had a, a PCR test and it was after seeing your video and, you know, I was driving in and the first thing I was thinking, of course, is these, these poor people are standing here in these incredibly hot, you know, shitty conditions doing this all yes. day. And I felt an incredible yes. level of respect. What I wanted to do was rip out your video and say, have you seen Eric's <laughs> video before you, before you go my nose? 
do you know about this go low go slow video but i i held back and i didn't do it i just trusted yeah. their expertise and it was great actually and it's funny because it's such a varied experience that the first one yes. i got as you said i think was a bit too on the high side and it was a bit yes. uncomfortable the second yes. one i had was totally fine like really didn't yes. bother me in the slightest no eye watering yeah. no yeah. no nothing and yeah. and just that that slight difference in um in direction yeah. obviously is, yeah. is a big deal now eric we're we're coming up on you know for some parents i think the week of hell where they're, they're heading back to schools <laughs> and yeah. it is i believe I, I can't remember the word highly was used but it's recommended maybe highly recommended yes. that they do yes. two of the rapid tests a week yes. now these are the yes. ones being given out i believe are primarily the the ones that go in the nose not the throat yes. so you know what you you did another video actually for parents. I think it was your daughter who was the guinea pig on in That's this video. Right. Yes. So I'm not sure about the ethics of that, but let's just move on. Yeah. You know, people people have had Nobel prizes for infecting themselves with bacteria to prove things about ulcers. So you know, yeah, yeah. Anyway, let's not go there. Yeah. Um, but but what's so what's the deal with, with regards to parents doing this? Because you know we're talking about little noses. You yes. know the, the the cotton bud sort of things are, are smaller and so forth on yes. those tests, but yes. you know, I mean, what's your advice there for parents who are, who are going to be doing this? Because it's a big deal. Yeah, it is. It is. It is a big deal, and we accept that uh, it is a big deal. And 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 one of the things that we just need to go through with our kids or with the young ones is to demystify the whole process. Mm-hmm. Everyone thinks that they're going to get a swab stick up their brain. No, <laughs> it's it when it's done well, it's actually as you have experienced, well tolerated, and actually it's absolutely fine. So it's definitely not uh, torture or abuse or any other kind of emotive mm-hmm. words that are being used and thrown about out there. Just going through it with a with, with the child uh, and some kids are mature enough to actually watch the video see how it's done you know everyone's on even three-year-olds are on ipads now so just showing some good videos around how it's done is actually really good the other thing is as well just giving the parent uh, uh, sorry giving the child uh, as much um, uh, uh, practice and autonomy as possible uh, discuss it with them and allow the discussion um, you know as to how they want to sit how they want to be positioned uh, how they want to be comfortable and i think that would be helpful Helpful. Uh, a few other little tricks as well, just putting their hand on a pillow, or putting a head, sorry, on a pillow or the fold of your arm and doing it slowly uh, makes a huge difference. And ultimately, some kids might be able to do it themselves as well. Mm. You know, some kids who are tactile, you know, who are dexterous enough, um, you know, might be able to do it themselves. This, uh, you know, today, just do some practice runs, grab the, logo, the, grab the cotton ball or even just grab a little uh, tissue, uh, you know, and just see if you can practice that. Um, and that would just give the child as much confidence and autonomy and information and education as they possibly can so that tomorrow morning when the stress of trying to pack everyone into the car and you know we don't know where the lunch bag is or where the hat is you know things like that you know that you're not too overwhelmed in the morning so do do that today and go through it with your kids yeah i think it's interesting i've been contacted by a couple of parents who have you know four kids under 10 type thing and they're like we can barely get them in the car yeah how are we gonna do this <laughs> right. I, I think there's a you know it's a, a it has to be on a best effort basis, I think, at this point. I mean, it's, there's Absolutely. so much going on at the moment. Absolutely. And you've already mentioned as well, for, for the general kids, it's about twice a week. And then for kids who are in special schools and other high-risk situations, it's almost every day. And I think it will be even harder for them. And yes, there are a few little tricks and just being comfortable around them. And it, it takes time. It almost takes about 20 minutes or so to just set things up, get things ready, and take your time with it and practice it today so that you'll be ready for it tomorrow. Yep. Good advice. And I'll, I'll reshare your videos on, on this with you and your daughter 
further at some stage later today as well on my Twitter feed if people are, are looking for it. Now, Eric, you're you're a, you're a surgeon. Are you are you sort of just playing golf at the moment? What's I mean, what's what's going on there? Have all your surgeries been cancelled? I wish. I wish, uh, Shane. We are still doing quite a lot of work. So we our clinics are becoming you know either face to face or online. Yep. Um, our surgical uh, operating sessions are still we're still doing category ones yep. uh, or urgent cases. Our emergency work still continues. Um, and when we are not operating, we're either doing uh, some clinical work, uh, you know, research or other things like that that we can try and squeeze in mm. uh, or doing some clinics, uh, seeing people online or face to face. So, yes, we're still working um, uh, during the pandemic chain. <laughs> yeah. now, now, just remind us, so category one uh, surgeries deemed to needed within 30 days. Is that right? Correct. That's right. So there's category one, category two, category three. Category one is between thir- within 30 days. Uh, category two between 30 to 90 days. And then category three within a year. But, you know, this has been affecting everyone. And, um, you know, elective does not mean, you know, cosmetic. Elective means necessary, but it doesn't have to happen within 24 hours because that's emergency. Yeah. Now, you, you've become a bit of a, a science communication star over the last six months. <laughs> I mean, this, this must, must have sort of uh, gotten away from you a bit. It's a lot of time, isn't it? It is. And, and this is the thing that I want to flip back to you, Shane. Tell me, you know, what would you say to someone like me who, you know, ha- who would love to deliver science communication better? You know, what are your tips? What are the what are the things that we as clinicians, scientists do better when we communicate things that might be esoteric and when taken out of context gets confusing? How do mm. you package that to your listeners? Yeah, look, one of the things to be really careful of is the use of terms that have different context in a clinical environment than they do in a public environment. And a great example of that, of that at the moment is the word mild. Um, you know, the word mild has been, you know, really disgustingly misused at the moment. Yes. Um, it's obviously, yeah. we're not in a situation where we have a mild um, pandemic going on. The, the current Omicron yeah. virus is not mild, but the, the term mm-hmm. clinically has some meaning. So I think for me, the main thing is, is varying your message depending yeah. on your audience. So, you know, if you were to give a talk about this to a group of kids, you would naturally go and vary the way you did it compared to a, a group of, you know, 50-year-olds. Yes. Um, yes. But we have to go further beyond that and vary it depending on culture, background, the whole lot. And it's often yes. something that gets missed when we communicate science in a way that ends up being really quite problematic. And then and then we have misinformation going around that is interpreted the wrong way. So, you know, it's an old older idea but you know really understanding your audience and where they're coming from and how they'll interpret things to me is the real key to getting science communication right so it's it's a little tricky but it's um yeah i think it's it's well worth just trying to trying to you know work out who who you're talking to for what purpose and what you want them to remember and I think yeah. a great example of this is your your video, which went for several minutes, had a, had a very simple short message, which was go low and go slow. And I think that's the sort of thing that will stick. And that's a great science mm. piece of science mm. communication um, because of that. So, Eric, we're almost out of time here, so we're going to have to run. But um, good to see you, you're doing well. I know you've had a bit of a COVID run in your family as well, which you've navigated <laughs> beautifully and kept uh, taking care of your patients. But keep up the good videos. Um, no doubt, you, uh, hopefully yeah. every parent in, in many states across Australia will have watched your video on how to do the rat tests um, <laughs> over the next day or so and get the right advice. Yeah. Thank you, Shane. And thank you for all of your communication and advocacy work. It's fantastic. Thank you very much. Absolutely. My pleasure. I'll see you on uh, Twitter, good buddy. And um, we'll chat Thanks. again at some stage in the future. Take care. See you. Thanks, Eric. Bye. Folks, that was Dr. Eric Levy. Uh, has some great videos up if you're interested in working out how to do the rat tests. I'll share them again later on my Twitter feed, which is 
at Dr. Shane Triple R, I think. Yes, it definitely is. Laura's looking at me quizzically. Folks, we're going to take a break for some music and we'll be back in just a moment speaking to Dr. Amy Haley about monitoring in cars. Really exciting stuff. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Go-Go on 3RRR. We have on the line with us now Dr. Amy Haley, who is the chair of the Driver State Monitoring Working Group in the International Council of Drugs, Alcohol and Traffic Safety, Centre for Human Psychopharmacology at Swinburne University. It's quite a mouthful there. Amy, you're doing some good stuff. Uh, it's a lot of stuff, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Where do you find the time? Um, now, you're, you're doing some really interesting stuff around drivers and driver impairment. Um, give us a bit of a rundown. I mean, what are the we, we hear a lot about alcohol, um, but, you know, other things, obviously, drugs and, and sleep deprivation and so forth, presumably in the mix as well. I mean, what are the big, big things in terms of um, impairment? Yeah, so broadly, our research program, so I'm in the Drugs and Driving Research Unit at Swinburne. Um, and so pretty broadly, our work sort of looks to determine the neurobehavioral and neurocognitive effects of different psychoactive drugs and how they might be relevant to traffic safety. Um, one of the changing sceneries in traffic safety, what we see is a sort of mix of more complicated combinations of things like illicit and prescription drugs, mm-hmm. uh, whether that be alone or in combination with alcohol. Um, unfortunately, as well, the kind of preventative measures that we're seeing with alcohol, so what works there with the reduced um, drink driving advocacy and BAC levels, doesn't seem to have the same translational value with drugs. So they're not kind of having the same uh, you know, deterrent effect on drivers. And so we're really kind to trying to look at sort of more proactive ways to prevent someone getting behind the wheel whilst they're intoxicated. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting the way you describe that because in, in the information you, you briefed me on before this interview as well is this whole mindset we have at the moment of sort of addressing it after the fact. So, you know, we do a lot of, um, you know, testing of people to see if they've been drinking and so forth. But those, you know, we probably could have gotten to the point where cars never let you even start driving if you're in a bad state. Instead, we, you know, I know we catch out a lot of people who are, you know, under the influence of various various um, chemicals, shall we say. Um, but overall, you know, we're, they're already on the road at that point, and that's that's really problematic. So, I mean, are there things around already that deal with this prevention stuff as opposed to, you know, picking it up later? Yeah, so I guess um, ideally what we want to do is, as you say, just sort of make these drug detection um, methods a bit more proactive. So at the moment, they're just entirely reactive. So that would be someone would be found uh, at the scene of a crash or mm. on detected on roadside drug testing. Uh, so at the moment, a lot of the newer vehicles are equipped with these vision-based systems. So that might be uh, able to detect when someone is uh, fatigued or otherwise distracted. And so this can be done by a combination of Um, driver head position, actual vision-based systems that are looking at the driver as they're sort of operating the vehicle. Um, And so arguably what we can hopefully do is sort of train these systems working with much more sophisticated um, human factor scientists than I am, um, train these sort of same systems to then be capable to detect when someone's, say, under the effect of methamphetamine. So my work predominantly is in the area of methamphetamine. And so this is a really interesting drug, I think, from a, um, I guess, a road safety perspective, because historically methamphetamine is a performance enhancer. And so I find it quite, I guess, difficult to reconcile then how we have 
so many crashes on our roads attributable to methamphetamine. And so really what we're trying to do is, uh, in my experimental work, I get to give people methamphetamine, which is really fun. Um, but then also, I guess, <laughs> monitor them whilst they're, you know, on behind the wheel. And so what we're doing with these vehicle systems and how I'm integrating my experimental work into this kind of future technology is we're looking at how they're, I guess, you know, visually scanning the environment when they're driving. And it turns out when someone's affected by methamphetamine specifically, the way that with their, the dopamine um, systems are affected, it then has a downstream effect on how they're able to um, attend to the road. So how their sort of visual attention is, is then impacted. And so what that actually um, culminates in is what's called, or what I've tried to term um, amphetamine-induced tunnel vision. So they're really just focused on a pinpoint point in the distance and they're not able to sort of accurately and effectively take in this kind of visual information. So driving is a really highly visual task. Um, and if you have someone who's not able to attend to and then process and react efficiently, then that's really going to make them ineffective drivers and potentially, you know, uh, crash and crash into other people um, in particular. And so this makes sense when we think about how drugs affect the systems, so neurochemically um, and also behaviourally. So it's at the moment trying to piece together those sorts of really composite uh, understandings of how we know that drugs affect the bodily systems and then how we can sort of train these more intelligent technologies to pick that up. And so what I'm hoping that will look like, I mean, it's going to be a little while until we can actually get something that sophisticated, but I'm hoping that that will look like a sort of suite of systems which can determine when someone might be A, affected by methamphetamine, B, affected by benzodiazepines, or C, maybe a combination of those or any other ones. And this is going to be increasingly interesting and difficult as we have more novel psychoactive substances yep. and different combinations and things like that. Yeah, uh, look, it's, it's fascinating. Uh, should, we should just put out a disclaimer for, you know, given your, your your techniques for investigating this, anyone who wants to be a PhD student with Amy, don't contact me, contact Swinburne, because <laughs> if they're listening to all of a sudden, you're, no, you're not getting methamphetamines from Amy if you're a PhD. Yeah, Laura here has got her hand up already. What, to sign up? No, no, no. I just, like, okay, so you're putting people on methamphetamines, and then where are they driving? So we have what's called a high-fidelity driving simulator at Swinburne. So it's almost like a car console. And simulator. We get them to do, Phew. Um, yeah, it's a simulator. Don't worry, I'm not getting anyone on the road. <laughs> Letting them loose. Fantastic. I, I, seriously, if I was you, though, I'd have a – you know, if they do well in the car simulator, you've got to put them in the plane simulator. Yeah, just to see what happens. Yeah. I think it'd be fun. We actually do have one of those at Swinburne. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic stuff. Well, Amy, in terms of um, – just, just to finish up, in terms of the, the technologies in cars – I mean, I suspect some some high end cars have probably already got this embedded in it, but a lot of a lot of cars don't. And my car, maybe not high end enough, uh, does not have this in it. Although it does tell me every time someone I'm turning the wrong way. Um, you know, when when do you expect this will sort of be broadly applicable? I mean, how fast is that stuff coming into cars? I mean, we've seen with things like uh, you know some some of the safety features like ABS brakes and so forth. You know, probably a period of a decade from first cars to almost all cars. Uh, where where are we with these sorts of monitoring s- scenarios? Where they sounds a bit freaky, doesn't it? Watch your eyes and your head to make sure you're looking in the right direction. So at the moment, some of the very very new technologies, and these are coming out of the US. So you've got the Super Cruise, the Cadillac Super Cruise system, and Ford Blue Cruise and things. They all do have these capabilities. It's slowly trickling down in Australia, um, but we're really getting that kind of infrastructure 
um, framework from the US where they've recently mandated you know, to have in the next six years, all vehicles, all new vehicles need to be built equipped to have these kinds of technologies. And so I'm hoping that really what we'll see is that kind of uh, the, the, that represented here in Australia with NCAP. So that's the Australian New Zealand safety ratings. And so slowly we'll see these new vehicles, which will have these kinds of technologies. It's a very slow turnover yep. because, you know, vehicles are around for a very long time. And so it's not something that's going to happen in the next, you know, even five to 10 years, but eventually, um, you know, hopefully with this kind of research, and there's a huge, huge interest in this because of that drive in in, in, um, in the US, that we'll hopefully see that kind of translated yeah. here sooner rather than later because we can already see that it does help prevent those kinds of really yeah. serious crashes that are caused by these intoxicants. Well, Amy, it's fascinating work. Um, you have to keep us up to date on this. I, you know, I'm, I'm really hoping to get to the point where we just everyone's just got a driverless car and there are no sacks of meat you know, putting us at risk anywhere, me included. Um, but we're a long way off that at this point. But these sorts of technologies are really fascinating. And it's amazing we, we haven't sort of pushed this earlier, um, given that we've probably had the, the technical capability to do a lot of this for, for quite a while. So thanks so much for chatting to us today on Einstein and Gago, and good luck with the ongoing work. Thank you so much, Shane. Great to talk to you. Folks, that was Dr. Amy Haley from Swinburne University working on some really fascinating things with regards to car safety. We're going to take a break for some important station announcements. And when we come back, we'll be uh, back talking to Dr. Haley. She's going to tell us all about, uh, you know, the good old Southern Oscillation Index, one of my favorite meteorological processes. It's amazing stuff. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Yeah, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gago. I'm Dr. Shane. Back in the studio, finally. It's been freaking me out being uh, not in the studio. I don't know what to do with myself when I'm not here. Does that surprise you, Dr. Laura? And again, Shane, got to get some, you know, backup plans. <laughs> backup plans, backup, backup stuff. Dr. Ailey has got uh, the goods for us, though, on the uh, La Nina, the Southern Oscillation Index which is uh, one of my old personal favourites. I remember talking to good old Andrea Peace from the from the Bureau of Meteorology years ago about this, and uh, I've remembered everything she told me. Well, 20% of it. <laughs> <laughs> Do tell, Dr. Well, Ailey. Hopefully you'll, uh, you'll get a bit of a reminder because I'm going to give you a bit of a, a climate science 101 today. But I wanted to talk specifically about uh, kind of part of what's, in this thing called the Southern Oscillation. I'll get to that in a second. But first, I just wanted to ask you both uh, how, how you enjoyed your move to Brisbane over the last couple of weeks with this weather. <laughs> I, hate, I hate it. I cannot stand the humidity. I know. It's disgusting. Know. So, but, Too much. Uh, you know, I live in Melbourne because I enjoy the heat, but I cannot stand humidity, yeah. right? And, and this last two weeks, we've just had storms and the humidity has been up kind of 40 50% during the heat at height of the day, which doesn't sound like much, but that's actually super um, tropical or subtropical, yeah, which is yeah. really like Brisbane. I don't know if you guys have been watching the tennis every time Ash Barty played and won. She's like, this is Brisbane weather, so I'm right at home. So, <laughs> hey, woohoo! maybe La Nina helped her win the Open last night. Um, but um, anyway, yeah, it's 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 been what we wouldn't call a typical summer here in Melbourne. I mean, we get the occasional storm, but we don't tend to get these, you know, it's been multiple weeks of, of, of storms and, and things like that. And even uh, throughout pretty much since kind of late winter, early spring, spring was really wet and November was one of the, the wettest on record for large parts of, of Eastern Australia. Um, and I suppose the question is why? And we, we kind of hear this, this term bandied around a lot 
La Nina. And everyone says, oh, it's the La Nina. It's the La Nina, La Nina. But what does that mean? And kind of what is La Nina anyway? Because I feel like it's it's an embedded part of the Australian vernacular now, La Nina and El Nino, but people don't quite get what it is. And I'll be perfectly frank, scientists still don't understand completely mm, <laughs> what yeah. it is. So I suppose I wanted to start um, about what La Nina is and kind of how we got to understand um, how these phenomena, La Nino and its counterpart, El Nino, um, affect uh, the Australian climate and indeed climate around the world. Because what we've got to remember is this thing is not just an Australian, uh, it's not, it doesn't just affect Australia, it affects the entire world, particularly around uh, the tropical Pacific uh, and, and countries that kind of border the tropical Pacific. So um, today, yeah, I just wanted to talk about that. So in that sense... <sighs> La Nina is part of this thing that we more broadly call, Shane said it at the start, the, the Southern Oscillation, right? So what is this Southern Oscillation? Well, it's basically this kind of, uh, I'm going to call it a semi-predictable climate cycle that just has this seesaw of uh, climate impacts across the globe around every five to seven years. So every five to seven years on average, we'll get one La Nina and one El Nino. Now, that doesn't always happen. Sometimes they come more frequently. We've actually had two La Ninas in a row, not strong ones, but we often get two La Ninas in a row. Sometimes we'll go a bit longer without having one. But it's a semi-predictable climate cycle. And basically, to kind of explain how it works, I want to give you a little bit of a, a history lesson in this thing called the Southern Oscillation and kind of how we um, even found out about it in the first place. Because, you know, this thing is, um, you know... it. You don't always get climate effects from a La Nina or an El Nino. You, you usually do, but not always, because climates, you know, climate and weather can be quite random. So sometimes El Ninos are not dry. Sometimes La Ninas are not super wet. Um, but what happened, this, you know, kind of first came to the attention of scientists, I would say in the late uh, 19th century. So around the 1890s, um, even before that, um, around the globe, um, people had noted this strange phenomena that happened kind of every five-ish or so years. So the first documented, I suppose, um, observations of what was going on are actually come from Peruvian fishermen, uh, and that is as far back as kind of the, the mid to late 1800s. So what the fishermen uh, in Peru would notice was that um, there's this, this wonderful cold uh, upwelling ocean current. So basically really cold uh, ocean waters from the Antarctic zoom up uh, the, the west coast of South America and with them they bring this really nutrient-rich water and so that uh, brings with it a lot of fish and a lot of fantastic fish. It's really good fishing uh, for, for, for food um, off the west coast of Peru. But every so often the waters would just suddenly warm up that current would disappear and their fishing baskets and fishing nets would be near empty and they would say, what's going on? And it so happened that it often happened around Christmas time. So when this happened, uh, because it was around Christmas time, they called this phenomenon El Nino, right, the boy. It means the boy in Spanish because it was around Christmas as in the Christ child, that's what they said. Uh, and then other years, instead of the fish disappearing, what would happen is they'd get bumper seasons like they'd get so much fish they didn't know what to do with because this this current would be stronger and so 
what we found, what they found, was they called the opposite La, La Nina, which is the girl, just because it's the opposite of the boy. And in around the 1890s, the Lima Geographical Society started talking to uh, the International Geographical Society as, you know, um, correspondence across the globe started to become a bit more um, normal with the advent of telegraph and people could start to travel um, maybe by ship, but, you know, people started to travel uh, long distances. And they talked about this phenomena. And some other people from the International Geographical Society said, ah, that's interesting, because that same year we noticed stuff happening over around Indonesia. Mm. And so, yeah, so that was really interesting. And so there was this guy uh, called Hilda Branson in 1897 who grabbed about 10 years' worth of pressure data from the... the uh, the observations that existed at the time and basically showed these kind of coherent patterns and changes in pressure, particularly across the kind of tropical areas, across across the globe, but particularly the tropical areas, that seemed to be quite coherent, that these things were happening at the same time. And then about uh, five years later, uh, an expanded data set um, from Norman and Lockyer confirmed that and they actually focused in on the Pacific and said, well, this is really interesting because we seem to have this seesaw in pressure. So when uh, the pressure is really high in the eastern Pacific, it's really low in the western Pacific, and then vice versa. You get these see- this kind of seesaw of pressure, right? So it's opposite on one side of the tropical Pacific than it is to the other. Then in the 1920s and 30s, Gilbert Walker, uh, who is a guy who I'll talk about, who's a bit famous in the, in the climate world, for, for discovering this thing called the Walker Circulation. Right, so the Walker circulation is basically um, it's seesaws in this Walker circulation that that cause this southern oscillation. So he developed this thing that Shane mentioned before called the Southern Oscillation Index, um, and Australia actually has a really important part to play here because the Southern Oscillation Index was actually first developed by looking at pressure differences between Tahiti in the tropical eastern Pacific and Darwin in Australia Hmm. because it was the longest-running pressure state. Those were the two longest-running pressure stations that they had for a while. So so Gilbert Walker was able to look at this back to 1876 and he was able to say, well, yeah, this is actually a coherent climate signal that when we get... um, when we get this atmospheric pressure that's really high in the eastern Pacific, we get it really low in the western Pacific and then vice versa. It flips and it just kind of seesaws. And so that was the development of this Southern Oscillation Index, and it tells us about the the atmospheric um, part of this this Southern Oscillation. But in reality, it's not just caused by this seesawing in the atmosphere. It's actually a really complex interaction between the ocean and the atmosphere. So basically the ocean talks to the atmosphere, the ocean heats up or cools down, and that changes the overlying pressure of the atmosphere and changes the overlying circulation. So what happens uh, in a normal situation is we've got this, I talked about that uh, really cold ocean current coming up the west coast of South America before. So in an El Nino, that completely shuts down, okay? And so what that means is you usually get really cool ocean waters off the west coast of South America. They can be anywhere from 8 to 10 degrees cooler than the same latitude in the West Pacific. Like, that's huge. Huge. Beautiful, beautiful swimming temperatures off the coast of Queensland, but if you did went and swam off the coast of Peru, you'd be in a wetsuit, you know. Mm. Um, 
But what happens in an El Nino is that that cold current disappears and that temperature gradient in the ocean kind of stabilises or it even flips so it gets warmer in, in Peru, on the Peru side, than it does on, on the West Pacific side where we are. In a La Nina, it kind of ramps up. It's kind of the normal situation on steroids. So it gets even colder than it normally would be and those cold temperatures tend to extend out uh, in the ocean along the tropical kind of Pacific, all around the all around the eastern tropical Pacific. And the waters over here get really, really hot, um, much hotter than they normally would. And so that kind of amplifies this big atmospheric circulation that we've got because of the pressure differences. And so what it tends to cause is on the eastern side of the Pacific, we tend to get uh, a lot of, a lot of uh, dry conditions because it's quite cold. So when it's cold, you don't get as much evaporation off the ocean and it kind of tends to lead to a more stable atmosphere, whereas on our side during a La Nina, the opposite happens. The waters get really, really warm and uh, we get really, really unstable atmosphere and that kind of encourages a lot of precipitation. So... Largely speaking, La Niña's over this side of the Pacific tend to be very hot and steamy, mm. uh, pretty much across eastern and northern Australia. Now, the centre of action of this thing is really over northern Australia, but it does tend to extend as far south as Tasmania for reasons that we don't particularly understand yet. We don't quite understand how uh, La Niña's and their counterparts, El Niño, kind of change the weather systems and the weather patterns. And that's something that myself and, and colleagues are working on at the moment to, to try and uh, pin this down a bit more. Um, but in terms of the La Niña that we've got at the moment, uh, the good news is if you don't like the humidity, La Niña's tend to be, and El Niño's, tend to be what we call very seasonally locked. So that means that they kind of develop in the winter and the spring they hang about through the spring and summer and then they disappear into the autumn. So the kinds of conditions we can, we've been experiencing, we can really only expect them to, to hang about for another month or so uh, and then we'll start getting back to, to normal conditions. Thank and, goodness, uh, Dr. Yeah. Daly, because I'm just yeah. sweating, just thinking about it. Now, um, just quickly before we go, um, I yeah. remember some, I have some vague recollection of the strength of either one of these patterns um, giving us some information as to how likely it would happen again in the next year? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Um, so sometimes we do get the what you might call a double, double banger. Um, we tend to get those, if you get really strong ones, um, you can tend to get another one the next year, but that's mm. not always the case. The relationships mm. are murky um we did just have two la ninas in a row you're usually more likely to have two la ninas in a row than you are el ninos and you're also more likely to flip from an el nino straight to a la nina right so uh rather than the other way around so there's all these things that seem to happen in the statistics that we haven't quite worked out <clears throat> why they happen yeah. yet, but it's super interesting. Interesting stuff. Well, it does explain some of this weird weather. It doesn't explain why my tomato plants are seven feet tall. Um, oh, my gosh. Me out too. Of I think it's just the rain. Yeah, out of control. Not a lot of fruit <laughs> on them, but uh, out of, is tomato fruit or a vegetable? I can never remember. Oh, fruit. Who uh, knows? Fruit. I think it's a fruit. Um, yeah, I think it's a fruit too. Pe people yeah. listening are just astounded by my, my psychic knowledge at this point. <laughs> 
Um, but yeah, so tall, so tall. They're, they're living yeah. in the tropics and they're loving it. Thanks so much, yeah. Dr. Ailey. It's, uh, it's really interesting listening to, um, to the complexity of this. And I love the fact that uh, we're going to go, but I love the fact that they worked this out before the, the turn of the last century, like in the 1900s. We didn't even get yep. plate tectonics going until the mid-50s, last you know, in the 1950s, because when you do stuff across a global scale and you don't have satellites everywhere to monitor it, it's really yeah. hard. So yeah, it's fascinating right. that all the meteorologists now got together on this and saw that some of this understanding out. Really cool stuff. Thanks so much, Ailey. Good stuff. Thanks. Um, folks, we're going to have to go. Uh, Dr. Laura, lovely having you in the studio again. Lovely having you here. And I love that education on where those words were coming from. It's beautiful. <laughs> Good stuff. We've got a big uh, Einstein and Go-Go coming again next week for you. To all the teachers, families and so forth out there listening, good luck with the return to school. I know it is a concerning situation for many. Um, be kind and stay safe. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere and we will chat to you again next week. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Go-Go, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.